Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Jim Knight is the founder and senior partner of Instructional Coaching Group. We all need coaches. We all need people who know the way, who go the way and who show the way and who help us think about taking that big step forward and up becoming better versions of ourselves and changing the game by changing our own game at the same time. Jim knows more about this than anybody else. He's the first person to describe the notion of instructional coaching in a detailed fashion back in 2007. He's written about a billion books. He's spoken about a quadrillion times. He is the man. He is the only North American with a sense of irony. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 11 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We're proud to be partnered with the School for Tomorrow and Alex Bell at Portland Education in delivering a dynamic coaching-based leadership program called Lead Now. Lead Now provides the opportunity for emerging and established middle leaders to further build towards their full potential contributing to the ongoing high performance of the school community they serve. Head to a schoolfortomorrow.com slash coaching. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. And Phil, before we get to our esteemed guests, I've heard a little rumour through the grapevine that you've given up on the Wallabies and that you've migrated you, you get, You've migrated over to New Zealand and you're looking for, uh, for um, citizenship over there. What's going on, Phil? Is this real? No, no, it's just garbage, Adriana, as you would as you would imagine. But, 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 I did enjoy a fantastic weekend with the amazing Jojo McKechn from Learner First, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, chatting more with folk about what, what what we're what we're hatching and what we're dreaming up in terms of taking a big step forward and up ourselves. I don't know about you, Jim, but I just heard that he's he's decided to go for the All Blacks from now on, which is an absolute oh, disgrace. God, anyway, enough of this nonsense. Seriously. Let's head over. Let's head over to our wonderful guest, Jim. It's wonderful for for us to be with you today. I'm going to ask you the very first question, and, and it's a question we ask all of our guests. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. Well, first off, I was just in Ireland when Ireland beat the All Blacks only a couple of weeks oh, ago. Oh so, yeah, so uh, I have a little All Black. <laughs> History going on. Okay. Um, and they were very, very happy in Ireland. So I grew grew up in Canada. I'm a Canadian citizen. I have American citizenship as well, which I got a few years ago. And I taught students with disabilities and saw some successes. And when you work with students who historically aren't that successful, you want to spread the word. So I became a professional developer in this approach called the strategic instruction model. I started to do workshops and I handed out postcards to participants and I licked the stamps and I said, um, send me these postcards when you implement. And everybody liked it. The evaluations were pretty positive. They said, this is what we needed. And after two years, I didn't get a single uh, postcard. So uh, it wasn't that they didn't like it. They just didn't do it. So I became consumed with the question, if we have these practices that really work, that are really helpful, because they helped me. I'd seen the results in my classroom. 
what's it take to get implementation? So at that time, Michael Fullan was the Dean of the University of Toronto School of Education. He went on to be the czar at Boise, in charge of Boise. And so I took courses with him. He generously took time to work with me independently and uh, got me thinking about change. I read all the stuff he'd written. He was writing Change Forces then. Jim, sorry to interrupt you, but of course, Michael Fullan's a fellow guest in this series of Game Changers. So there's a, there's a lovely resonance. Well, and, and I'll just say he, he taught me a lot, but he was extremely generous with his time. And uh, there's an old um, story about, I think it's Charlie Parker, uh, talking about uh, Louis Armstrong. And, no, it was Dizzy Gillespie talking about Louis Armstrong. And uh, someone said, what was the influence of Louis Armstrong on you? And Dizzy Gillespie said, know him, know me. And that's kind of how I feel about Michael Fullan. Was it not, if it not, wasn't for him, I wouldn't have the any of the things I did. But I've been fortunate. Anyway, so I came to the University of Kansas where the strategic instruction model was developed and we're sitting around a table talking about getting teachers to implement the practices. And we said, you know, we're gonna have to go meet the teachers one-to-one. We're gonna have to go in the classrooms and observe what they do. We're gonna have to sit down and co-plan. And uh, we're gonna have to follow up because they'll probably forget the stuff in the workshops. And someone said, well, if we do that, for this group, why don't we do it for everybody else? And that a uh, pretty much instructional coaching as, as we do it is, was launched. And I've been, since then, continually trying to get better at what I do. I want to take us back a little bit. Can you share with our audience a little around what motivated you to actually become a teacher in the first instance? Um, well, I was at the University of Toronto and I was studying to be a university professor. Uh, and I was going to, I was working on a doctoral program in English literature, wrote my comps and everything. And I had two children within one year and um, I had to get a job. And so I got a job in a community college and taught English. I thought I was going to teach Shakespeare and the modern novel, but I ended up teaching uh, the most challenged students in the school in terms of their success. They brought together 10 kids. I had the least ex- instructional experience, so I got those students. And we had someone there who, um, who was an expert in learning disabilities, and she eventually I got my uh, certification as a special ed teacher and went that route. But um, I liked the idea of teaching even as a graduate student. I liked the idea of sharing ideas, and, um, and I really love teaching. I really love the experience of sharing ideas. I like building a community where you have a community of people who come together and support and learn from each other. So it, it was honestly necessity plus a love of English and a love of writing. And most of my focus was on helping students learn how to write. Writing is so cool because you can show a pre-test and a post-test and you can show the tangible changes students are making. It's very easy to show progress. And most of my kids have learned helplessness, as Martin Seligman will call it. And you could shift them to being more confident, more learned optimism by just showing them they could do it. And Formative assessment was built into what I did, but that was a huge part of it because kids could see their progress and then they were more motivated. And then once once I saw what you could do with those students, I kind of got evangelical zeal and I wanted to get other people doing the same thing so other kids wouldn't get left behind. Phil said at the very top of the show here that you're the current uh, senior partner at uh, Instructional Coaching Group. What's an instructional coach and why do we need them in our schools? Well, we need them in our schools because our kids deserve the best possible learning experience they can have. And that's not going to happen by chance. That's mm-hmm. going to happen by support. And I think, broadly speaking, um, we do professional development completely backwards. We say, um, here's what research says. We're going to do a workshop. I'm going to teach you how to do it. Then I'm going to do various kinds of things to make sure you do it. And you overlook the fact that you can't force people to learn. 
Mm-hmm. And that um, very people, very few people are really motivated by other people telling them what to do. And so we've learned over time that you start the other way around. We say coach changes inside out, not out. If you think of the major changes you two have made in your lives, I bet you there's not that many that you did because someone told you to do it. There's something inside you that comes alive. You want to do this thing. And so that's where, as we define it, instructional coaching comes from. It comes from helping the teacher identify an emotionally compelling goal they want to hit and then helping them hit the goal. Now, what makes instructional coaching different from other kinds of coaching is an instructional coach, first off, they're a partner with teachers. So which means it's, it feels like a teacher talking to a teacher, even though I have a different title and a different role, it's teachers talking to teachers. The conversation should feel the same. There's the same degree of power there. But what an instructional coach does that's maybe different than other kinds of coaches is they have expertise. They have expertise about, about what effective teaching looks like. And they know how to set goals and monitor goals. They know what data looks like. They have expertise. They just don't act like experts. They're a teacher talking to a teacher. I mean, you could have a kid who's nine years old be the expert on Minecraft and teach you a ton about Minecraft. And you don't have to be an expert to teach other people. You just can be a partner. But it's helpful to, if you're helping, if you're trying to change, it's helpful to have somebody who knows how to help you do that, who has the materials to, to make it happen. Jim, I'm really interested in the notion of an emotionally compelling goal for a teacher. How do you help teachers who've been in the system for a wee while and perhaps become cynical about the system, about possibility, about students, about all about themselves, about all sorts of things? How do you help teachers who, who whose lights has been turned off or have turned off their own light to turn the light back on and, and connect to that that sense of purpose inside? Well, first off, maybe you can't. I mean, it's not it's not a guarantee that everything is going to work. And it's like anything else, you you take your best chances and you do the, you, you take your most skillful response and it's people. So it's always complicated and it's always messy. So you never know for sure. But one thing I would say is buried in a complaint is a commitment. And so if someone's complaining, they're complaining because there's something that's not happening that they want to have happen. And if you can uncover that commitment, then you're off to the races with that. The people who worry me the most are the ones who are completely apathetic and they're just counting the minutes until they're done. And, you know, that's the but the second thing I would say is often what Miller and Rolnick say in motivational interviewing is that uh, motivation comes from a gap between where you are and where you want to be. But what we do is we avoid reality, probably unintentionally, by through defense mechanisms like blaming others and uh, minimizing the problem or through perceptual errors. So we don't see current reality and we're less inclined to want to make a change because hey, it looks pretty good or it's the best I can do, or who could teach these kids, they're unteachable. So if you can help a person get a clear picture of current reality, that often is a catalyst for change because they go, oh, that's not what I want. I want this. But right now, a person who doesn't see the need for change probably doesn't have a clear picture. Actually, right now, most people don't have a clear picture of what it looks like when they do what they do. Not just, not just people who aren't motivated. Most professionals they watch themselves on video. It's the reason why every athlete probably watches themselves on video because they're going to see things they, they don't aren't aware of until they see the video. So to me, a clear picture of current reality is a starting point for motivation. But you're not going to get there unless you work as a partner with the teacher. And so the teacher has to feel this is a person who sees me as a good person, who sees me as having skills, who's not trying to control me, and um, who's connecting with me as best they can. So perhaps, Jim, then the I mean, you, you raised expertise earlier, and I'd love to dig into that a little bit further, but perhaps one of the singular areas of expertise of any teacher, whether a starting teacher or a senior teacher or an instructional coach or someone, is a particular expertise in relationship. 
and in designing the sort of relationship where we can get to what colleagues in particularly middle leadership positions all around the world talk about as difficult conversations where you've got to unpack this sort of stuff and try and help people find a way forward. How would you describe this expertise in relationship and relationship building? There are a lot of really good books on on difficult conversations. And um, you know, I like those books. I think they're really helpful. But I think, and I'll talk about difficult conversations in a sec, but I think a more important thing is how do I establish healthy, trusting, mutually humanizing relationships with people that aren't just about hard, difficult, crucial, fierce conversations. So just having a regular conversation is not that easy a thing. And so I wrote a book called Better Conversations, and it's really about uh, how you build connections with other people. And things I just mentioned, I think, are all critical. This is what I've been thinking recently. The people want, they want to believe they're good people. They want to believe they're competent. They want to connect. One positive way of saying that is they want to be loved. A negative way of saying that is they don't want to be rejected. They don't even want to be rejected by people they reject. And people want to have control over their lives. And when you do a difficult conversation, let's say, if it addresses any of those things, if people feel like you're telling them they're not competent, you're telling them they're not good people, you're trying to control them, or that's their perception. I mean, it's not even what's happening. It's how it's perceived. Mm -hmm. Or they they feel they're being rejected, even through nonverbal communication. Then the conversation isn't about whatever the topic is. The conversation is, yes, I'm a good person, or how dare you say I'm not competent, or why are you trying to control me? So you have to find ways to communicate that, communicate those four things that you see the good in the other person. And for me, a large part of it is honoring the capacity of a professional to make, I mean, treating a professional like a professional, letting them, letting them set a goal that matters to them. John Campbell, who lives in Sydney, New South Wales, he says, he says a less than perfect goal chosen by the teacher is better than a perfect goal chosen by the coach. I think he got that from Tony Grant at the university of Sydney as well, but that's the idea. So I think uh, there's, we could go into a lot more detail, but the, the heart of the matter is I see the other person as good. I see their strengths. It's not to say they're perfect. It's not to say they don't need to improve, but there's, we tend to see the negative before we see the positive. And if you really want to build a relationship, you need to connect, communicate that you see their strengths. Let's follow up on that, that book, Better Conversations, which um, came out originally in 2015. Um, there's so much that in there that is good and helpful and practical to help us think about ways of coaching ourselves and, and, and each other. And in particularly the emphasis on being credible and caring and connected. What does a more credible, caring and connected leader actually look like in practice, Jim? Well, I think, first off, I have a lot of empathy who's, for people who are in administrative positions. It seems like I'm not answering any of your questions, but I'll do my best. But I think if you're a principal, an assistant principal, once you have power, structural power in the system, it becomes a lot more difficult to connect and relate to other people because they uh, see you differently. You know, you walk down the hall and there's a whole bunch of people laughing and having a conversation and you walk into the room and the conversation stops. And so I have a lot. And then on, not only that, but when you have structural power, people expect a lot of you that they don't expect of themselves. So, so if you just once let down your guard and you're a little bit upset, people will remember it for years. Whereas teachers are upset, you know, frequently, but it's not something that's remembered. But when you're in a leadership position, and also people just don't connect with you in quite the same way as they did before. So I, first off, I have an awful lot of empathy for anybody who takes on the role. It's a hard thing to do. And I think 
I think there's many different things, but I, I think that uh, what we call the partnership approach is really important. So I'll say a few things about that. This is a little, I'll try to make it as short as I pick a few of the key principles. One of them is I don't think I'm better than the other person. So we call that equality. I'm not saying we treat people the same, we differentiate. But because I don't think I'm better than you, I don't moralistically judge you. I replace moralistic judgment with appreciation. Now, moralistic judgment isn't discerning reality. Moralistic judgment is discerning reality and then saying, what's wrong with you? Are you lazy or what? It's, it's adding a pejorative stigma to, to, the, to the observation of reality. And so I think if you want to connect with other people, you have to move away from moralistic judgment because moralistic judgment is a learning killer. It's an intimacy killer. And you can replace it with appreciation. And then the second thing is, if you really believe in equality, you should let other people talk and not interrupt them. That would be a key thing. And then I'll just go to one other principle, which is dialogue. And based on some of the reading I've done, I would say that if you want to have a dialogue, you have to uh, be open to hearing the other person's opinions. You have to see their strengths and communicate them. And you have to engage your will for the good of the other person. You have to have benevolence towards that person. And when you have humility and the fact that you're open to hearing the other person, you communicate, you have faith in them and you believe in them. And when you, you genuinely want what's best for them, people will trust you. But if any of those three things are missing, they won't trust you because why would they? You know, you don't even want to hear what I have to say, or all you talk about is my flaws. You don't see my strengths or, and I don't feel safe with you because I know I'm going to be criticized or I don't really think you care about me. I think you're just concerned about what you look like or other things, you know? So I think those are two things. There's seven principles in the book uh, uh, that I've written about in a lot of different places, but that's, that's a couple examples. I'm really, I'm really appreciating this masterclass that we're receiving today here, Jim, around <laughs> the speed of trust happens through our commitment to the relationship and the inherent dignity right. of the other. Uh, and that's coming through really loud, loud and clear. In, in, in that book um, that Phil and, and you are now talking about, uh, your book, I should say, Better Conversations, you know, there are, there are beliefs and there are habits. And, and you've shared with us some of those, um, some of those beliefs. One of the most overarching is that we enter into those dialogues with the other, seeing them as equal partners. And, and if, we, right. if we approach it with that particular mindset, uh, it can be quite transformational. It's the same if we approach that mindset with the young people in our classes, in our care. I mean, I know that adults have different responsibilities to young people, but ultimately, if we treat them with the same inherent dignity that we would treat anyone, uh, it often, in my experience, it has yielded, not often, it has yielded really, really positive outcomes uh, along the way. I want to now then move it over to the student because we've been talking about the context of, of the adult and, and supporting them in, in this notion of better conversations. We hear a lot about a skills revolution uh, that's required in today's new world. You know, World Economic Forum is a, is a huge catalyst for advocating for this kind of skills re revolution. And, and one skill that they strongly advocate for, of course, is the notion of communication skills. What do you believe are the fundamental steps for building communication skill capacity in young people so they can thrive in their world today? It's probably not much different than adults. Um, and I don't really, I don't want to uh, come off like an expert in an area I haven't researched. So I'm, I'm, I'm always a little hesitant to take my ideas about how I work with adults and transfer it to the classroom. One thing I would say is, um, at the heart of what we do is not turn the other person into an object. So not seeing them as a stereotype, a kid with a learning disability, 
to genuinely see the humanity of the other person, as you said it really well. And so I would say there are beliefs and there are skills. When I work with adults, and I would think helping kids understand the beliefs and skills, reflecting on it, I think a really important skills would be something like interrupting without, or listening without interrupting or um, communicating the strengths you see in another person, asking questions that you don't know the answer to. I hate the phrase probing questions. Do you want to be probed? Getting probed doesn't sound good to me. Some guy in a white suit is going to stick you with something. No, I don't want to be. But invitational. I like invitational questions, generative questions that one leads to more. And questions that give power to the other person, not leading questions, but a question like, you know, I love the solution-focused question. If a miracle happened and everything was going the way you would want it to go, what would it look like? And uh, my friends at Growth Coaching in Sydney and across Australia, they've done a lot of work with students coaching each other and developing the coaching skills. And I was at the conference in Sydney, the last one they, where they had it face-to-face, and they had students coaching each other, and they kind of blew me away. And in fact, students even coached the teachers in some of those circumstances. So I think another thing, probably, honestly, I'm just shooting from the hip here, because this is in my, there's, there are many people who know more about social-emotional learning and what kids need to do, but I think whether we're talking children or adults, I think self-compassion is really important. That um, you recognize we're not perfect people. Tomorrow's another day. I'm going to do my best. But uh, really all that matters is the moment. You know, the history doesn't matter. The future doesn't matter. But right in the moment, I am who I am in this moment. And teaching kids, you know, children carry around a lot of negative baggage. And to teach them how to have self-compassion, I think Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion is something I'm really interested in. So I don't know how good an answer that is, but I I think even if all they did was stop, I don't know how you would teach this, but have the belief that every person counts. Every person deserves respect. And then to look at things like how you listen, how you ask questions. Uh, I've always been interested in John Gottman's work on emotional connection and teaching kids how to read the bids of another person and to turn towards. I think there's a lot of potential there, but there's, I'm sure there's a ton of things you can do, but It comes down to what are your beliefs and then what are the skills that reflect your beliefs? Jim, one of the things that Adriana is always really strong on is the notion that every person is home to a unique life. I don't think you need a particular expertise to recognise that and act accordingly. It's a little bit like the old dictum around pastoral care of students. Know the child and respond accordingly. You know, Mm. that's that's there's a profound human quality that sits in that. That is, it's not particularly technical. I think, but it does require you to tap into and understand and articulate the things that you believe in. How do we help teachers to clarify for themselves what they believe is important about the work they do, what's what's important about the students that they teach, and what's important about the purpose that they might have as teachers? Yeah, what I would say is that uh, it's belief and action. And... uh, because people will say, oh, I think other people are, I don't think I'm better than other people. I don't think I'm more important. I think they're equal. But then their actions reflect that they don't see it that way. So they interrupt all the time, especially when you have structural power, like a teacher in a classroom or a, an administrator in a school. There's a tendency to interrupt other people. And if you really believe others are equal, you shouldn't be interrupting them. But that's how I see it. And they may see it, others may see it differently. But I think the beliefs don't become real until they're manifested in action. So once you sit down and say, well, this is what I believe. I believe other people should have some control over their lives. I believe we should have back and forth conversations where others are heard. I believe people should have a voice in what they do. When you say those are the things you believe in, 
Do your actions really reflect it? And the reality is rarely, but it's a vision of what I want to accomplish. So your beliefs give you something to strive for. Well, today I can try to be a little bit better at what I do. I can move closer to being a person who genuinely believes in equality, who genuinely really believes like when you listen, the other person should realize it's not just hearing the words. The other person should know, I think your opinion matters. I think your words are important, but that's not coming through. It's not listening. Listening, listening's not just taking in the words. Listening is communicating that your ideas, your 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 words are important. This is um, such an important conversation because uh, often when I would be in, in a school environment, I talk to particularly middle leaders, emerging leaders, and, and very established senior leaders that they need to listen to understand, not simply listen to respond. What I really liked about your response to me, the question I asked in relation to students a moment ago was that that response was not that dissimilar to a response that you would give if I asked it about adults. And if we are going to be really effective listeners within our, in our, in our communities uh, and, and we're committed to listening, then we have to be committed to all those bits that you've just shared with us. And one of them, of course, is this notion of being forever curious, you know, asking those better questions, uh, you know, to enable uh, individuals for them to feel and see that we're genuine about our interest in them and in what they have to say. When we talk with our members of our school communities uh, through a school for tomorrow around the world about the habits of leaders, they tell us that communication is, is the most significant about, above anything else. And they tell us that great communication is centered around effective listening, building trust and asking better questions, fostering advocacy and inquiry. And that would sound very familiar to you, to Jim, because no doubt they've read the Better Conversations book as, as a real manual for them. So my question to you is this, how can we best support school leaders to develop and live the necessary beliefs and habits to be open to looking at things from a broader perspective as opposed to just their narrow perspective. To better support leaders to be better communicators. I think it's important, and I like your word habit. That's what I'm studying right now, what I call life-giving communication habits. And so we have focus groups trying things out, and I'm interviewing the people after they try things out to see what they're doing. And we're looking at, you know, the there's a number of people who've written about habits and what are the cues? What's the routine? What's the reward for it? So we're helping people deconstruct their communication events by reflecting at the end of the day on how it went to do very simple things like putting away your phone during a conversation. And what's the cue? And then when do I do it? And what's the reward? And so what we found uh, working for a month with a group of coaches is that People had to identify the cue and then develop the habit of putting away the phone or whatever it might be. And uh, what they found was the simple thing of putting away your phone dramatically improved their conversations. And they had conversations they wouldn't have had. I just saw you put away your phone. They had conversations they wouldn't have had un unless they put their phone away. And, and so I, I'm more and more convinced that to become a better communicator, we need really simple things, not interrupting, putting away your phone developing self-compassion, replacing judgment with, with, uh, uh, with uh, appreciation, S simple things, and, and then developing the habits to make it happen. So that's what I would say. Like, like an administrator who says, when I sit down to talk one-to-one -one with a teacher, I'm going to turn my phone off and put it in my, and maybe you won't, aren't able to do that because you have to be online in case something's happening in the school. But an administrator who at least vis visibly puts the phone away, 
that's a big step forward for communication. And I've talked to people who had administrators who looked the first time they met them, the administrator was on their device the whole time. They didn't connect. So little things, I think little habits can make a huge, huge difference. That's, that's my quick reaction to that question. What's really significant about that response to me, and I'm sure to our listeners, is when we are prepared to be deeply conscious and present in the presence of others, then we can have real transformation that's going on and, and, and the possibility of being open to these broader perspectives. That's a really, that's a really um, tough thing often for, for people in leadership positions who, who, who have very transit conversations at times because their mind is already three steps ahead somewhere else and they get it and they would see it as an interruption. Uh, someone stops and bails them up, asks them a question and they keep going. Helping people to really tune in and be deeply present not just physically present, you know, but every part of their being being present is a real challenge, I feel, for, for leaders. Do you have any advice about how they can maintain a deep consciousness when, as, as part of their kind of normal toolkit of ways in which of operating? Well, first off, I think the habit literature gives you some insight into what to do. And I think one thing to do is to reflect on what happened when I did this, what happened when I did that. And if you develop the habit of being fully present um, and then you reflect at night or just you experiment with it. As a leader, I want to be the most effective I could be so kids will have the best outcomes or for whatever reason it might be, most likely for kids. Well, then just to try one thing and keep track of it for a while and reflect, you know, even if it's just five minutes, even if it's five minutes of reflection on your own, the daily reflection on what happened is a really, really key part. But I would say a, a critical part in being present is that moralistic judgment, is to let go. And I want to say again, when you think this person's clueless, this person doesn't care about kids, this person just loves to hear themselves talk, this person's full of themselves. When those things happen, learning opportunities are gone because people can sense it. They can feel the lack of connection mm -hmm. and uh, intimacy is gone. Because you have a secret about that person you're not sharing. So I think that is almost like an a priori thing. And we have to get rid of judgment. And not because we're like trying to be really nice people. I mean, that's a good reason. But it's really because we're more effective leaders when we do it. That's the key thing, I'd say. Again, listening to you and Adriano um, talking just teases out more and more and more of these things. So I want to keep, with, you know, with your prompting, I want to bring it back to something really simple, which is about helping people to change habits. You've probably already observed I've got an unpleasant habit of interrupting people because you know that's what sort of happens in conversation I get terribly excited about something and I forget to wait my turn um it's a lifelong habit how am I going to break that like you know what, what are the steps that we can take to help a colleague to help um a professional to identify these simple little things and then work into their daily lives the different habit that changes um, the way in which they're received by someone else in an authentic fashion. The first thing I think is just to cut yourself some slack. I mean, um, we're people, we're messy, we're complicated. We're going to do it all wrong all the time. Like we're going to make mistakes. But most of us agree you can get worse. So if a person can get worse, they probably can get better. So I think, you know, we need to spend less time tearing into ourselves. I'm not really... I mean, I've written the book on this stuff and I'm still not that great at not interrupting and, you know, making eye contact and, and all those kind of things that are critical. I could get better in just about everything I, I, I do, but I'm not as bad as I used to be. So I think, I think the first thing is what 
Kristen Neff calls self-compassion. But the way that habit research would go is to look for the reward, is to constantly ask yourself, what happens when I interrupt? Now, Nancy Klein's book, uh, The Promise That Changes Everything, is a great book about not interrupting. And just to give you, use that example. And so what she says is we need to stop interrupting because when we interrupt, we interrupt people's thinking and when the world needs better thinking. And so just to pick that habit, I would say if you're watching yourself and you find yourself interrupting, pay attention to what happened. Did I interrupt the other person thinking? And if you start to become aware of the fact that every time I interrupt, even if you interrupt with some good news, that you're actually interrupting your thinking, that might be a catalyst for you to start to say, you know, it's better for me not to interrupt. You have to feel the reward. This habit has to be, the habit of not interrupting has to be, or being fully present has to be more rewarding than the not the habit of interrupting. So becoming attentive to what's happening, paying attention to the fact that you're constantly interrupting people. Think you're not just doing that. And then ask, you know, reflecting on, I mean, maybe people define equality differently. But if, if your definition is, if I'm equal, I, sh I should really hear the other person. And then reflecting on how you live out that, that belief, I think, is key. So, so paying attention to the reward, reflecting on what you're doing, these are, these are, this is what I'm thinking about right now is really key. Jim, None of this is um, in books, but that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> it's the stuff that we're thinking that ends up in books. But we've got to it's think going it to be first, book, yeah. Jim, you, you talk about the self-compassion trait. I reckon in all of the people that I've met who are strong in their high performance or high achievement, as our, as our friend Mal Meninga would call it, self-compassion is amongst the, the, the lowest of the qualities in whatever profile you're doing. High performance people are terribly, terribly tough on themselves. They're unforgiving for the mistakes that they make. Firstly, is, have you noticed that as well? It's just, I don't know. It's, it seems like a reasonable thing to ask. And, and, and secondly, is there a danger in promoting that, that they might actually lose their edge? Well, I don't know, but I'll give you my answer. Um, Jim Collins in, in Good to Great, which has kind of been criticized, but nonetheless, what he found is he said the real leaders have a really clear picture of reality and a fierce drive to move through it. And so it's both. I have a clear picture of what's happening. And at the same time, I don't know if he would use the word self-compassion, but they're driven to move forward and do their work. And one without the other doesn't get the job done. So I think so long as you have a really, I think some people think self-compassion means I'm hiding from reality. I don't think so. I don't think that's it at all. I think you have to have a crystal clear, to get better, you have to know where you are, to have to see what you're doing. If you have a clear picture of reality and a genuine desire to improve, I don't think you're going to speed up by thinking you suck. I think you're going to speed up by seeing your strengths and seeing what you're capable of and pulling yourself forward to do the work. I think a vivid, clear picture of reality is not inconsistent with self-compassion. And I think a vivid, clear picture of reality is critical for growth and improvement. That's how, how I would see it. But what do you think about that in, in terms of what you've seen? Does that resonate with you, you as true or do you think I'm missing something? No, I, I, I think that's a way through. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, I, I think I first observed this as a conversation I had um, with uh, a, a remarkable Australian, Rick Charlesworth, who, get, get this for a career, typical underachiever, all right, medical doctor, represented Australia as a hockey player at the Olympics and World Hockey Championships, played cricket for his state, Western Australia, was a member of parliament for his state in Western Australia, and has coached gold medal winning Olympic 
uh, men's and women's hockey teams in the Olympics, you know, real underachiever. I, I remember watching him working with high achievement, you know, watching the, the hockey the hockey roots, the, the women's team at that point in time and the contrast with the way that he would work with school kids, good good school kids, you know, you know high talent. And there, there, there was a distinct difference in around that he didn't move around, you know, he didn't move around that really strongly self-critical piece the Olympic level hockey players had, what he did was he was able to channel it towards something positive, you know, to take it towards something positive. So, you know, it's not negating, but allowing allowing a space where you could use that in a constructive fashion rather than destructive fashion uh, against yourself. So I think that I'd, I'm, I'm, I, I really liked your reference to Jim Collins. Um, uh, and I think the good to great stuff is fantastic. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. I also note that, you know, the, the way in which, you know, you, you said he's been criticised. I think everybody should be criticised. I think every thinker, every writer should be criticised. Um, none of us are immune to criticism. Otherwise, we've got nothing to add to each other. Um, you know, no one's got a mortgage uh, on the on the truth. But I think in the world that we live in today, uh, particularly in our social media reality, um, mm. if, there, if there is such a thing, what happens is that something that somebody did wrong or, or thought that is unfashionable that then, then gets dragged down and then their whole body of work gets trashed um, in the process. You know, each, each one of us should be criticised and our work should be, should be revised from, from there, I think. Uh, and, and that's how we build resilience in the world. The number one quality that parents around the world right now are talking about with their kids is resilience, grittiness. You know, it's the Angela Duckworth sort of stuff. You know, it's it's that that's the stuff that they worry about, and perhaps that's a worry about a difficult world, and they want their kids to be able to sort of see their way through that. Teachers um, are worried about their own resilience in and around it. What's the role of coaching in helping to promote the resilience of an individual in a world that's moving fast and at times takes no prisoners? Well, this gets back to your, your question. It's old research, but I really like Martin Seligman's research on learned optimism. And he said that uh, what his research showed is that people who were learned optimists were more successful than learned pessimists. And he talked about the way in which you talk to yourself in your head. And um, he didn't use the word self-compassion, but he, he, uh, he said that if you, if you think a negative experience is permanent and pervasive, and personal, you're less likely to be a person who's successful in sales or the various areas he looked at than someone who thinks a negative experience is temporary and not pervasive, but localized and not necessarily always your fault. And I would say a self-critical person tends to see themselves as experiencing things that are permanent, pervasive, and personal. And an and a optimist, and I would guess that you're you don't hide from the hard things. You want to really zone in and see them. But I would have guessed you're a person who, by the way, hockey involves skates. So I don't know what that sport is you're talking about. But at any rate, um, <laughs> you're, you're, I, 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 I would guess that he had learned optimism, that he could, re, he could rebound when things went bad. He didn't get hung up on it. So that, that's how I'd see that. In terms of kids, all I'll say in my experience as a teacher is – you can't talk them into it. They have to experience success. And I learned it myself. You know, I had pretty low self-esteem when I came out of high school and I was a terrible student in university. 
I moved to the Rockies in, in Canada and the Canadian Rockies, and I started to climb mountains and I met this group of other climbers. And there was something about the physical act of climbing all those mountains that changed my mindset. So when I went back to university, I was like, okay, I'm ready for this. I'm going to take it on. There's something about the physical act of, you know, for lack of better terms, conquering all those mountains, that action changed my beliefs. And I think for kids to develop, I don't know if I would use the word grit, but if, for kids to develop um, the capacity to succeed, they have to have experiences that show they can do it. I don't think, I don't think you can ever talk them into it. They have to experience it, whether it's, experiencing success and taking on appropriately challenging kinds of activities and getting good at them, or maybe something like my experience, my experience was outside school. My experience was climbing mountains. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It's, it's funny. You should say that Jim, because again, our, our research, particularly amongst kids age 15 to 18 in school, you know, 71% of them make their big character breakthroughs outside the classroom, be it through some sort of, extracurricular activity like climbing mountains typically they'll talk about outdoor education or a challenging sport and clearly mm -hmm. i was talking about field ho field hockey there as opposed to that other magnificent game in skates um uh, <laughs> all, 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 I'll, all i'll say to you jim is go leafs go um that's awesome. um, there we go and then and then but then once they've learned it outside they they, they bring it back um uh inside that that sort of uh formal learning space and then they then they can begin to habituate um, around that, but I guess you've got to you've got to conquer yourself as much as anything else to, to before you realise you can actually do it. You know, and you, right. you know, you know, we can't hold we can't hold children back from experiencing success. The challenge with that is that it almost always and probably should involve temporary failure. So I, I guess it's it's helping people chart you know the learning pit and then and then work their way out. And I think great coaches help us to believe that we've got the capacity to do that uh, and, well, and help us find ways to pull ourselves up. I think I just interrupted. Um, <laughs> I, like, I like the research that comes from the University of Kansas, where I have a very part-time position, and um, on hope theory, which says hope involves three elements. There's a goal you're striving, something, a preferred future, either Rick Snyder or Shane Lopez. Preferred future, a pathway to the future, and agency, a belief that you can do that. And what coaches do is they bring hope because they help you get clear on your goal. They help you identify the pathways and they build agency by helping you make the adaptations you need to make to hit your goal. And when you start to build, start to hit your goal, your agency grows and whether you call it greater perseverance or hope, that's what's happening. And those three things I think are critical. What's my goal? How am I going to get there? And can I do it? And coaches do that. Coaches, are, they, they help people get clear on their goal to identify the pathway, build agency. Coaches bring hope. Jim, this has been a fascinating conversation and uh, we're going to wrap it up now because uh, our time is coming to an end. I think we could uh, we could go on go on forever. And even that last comment that you just made there, it's almost like a, a Dorothy complex, uh, you know, that's going on there there in Canvas. Uh, there's always hope, right? Uh, right. And, and that's something that we, we will and I really want to hold on to. And, and I know that uh, both Phil and I often speak about the value of, of hope particularly within in leadership and, and the optimism that comes with that. This entire series has been around us supporting our listeners in the space of the competency of lead. So my final question is this. If you had 280 characters to tweet a definition of leadership or leading, what would it be? Well, first, I have to explain my Australia chops. 
like my credibility as an Australian, which is to say that every day when I wake up for breakfast, I have Vegemite on my toast. I am the only person living in the United States right now who probably does that. But that's that. I feel that that that's my credibility as an Australian. I don't know if I could put that in. I mean, I think leadership involves leading yourself and leading others. Leading yourself is understanding your purpose. It's making the time to do what you have to do. It's paying attention, not hurrying. And it, it is self-compassion. And leading others is being a multiplier versus a diminisher. It's about that idea of balancing ambition with humility. It's about shaping culture. But my friend Kristen Anderson, she says that leadership is about unleashing the brilliance of other people, which is, I know, a phrase others have used in Australia. But I've heard it from Kristen. So I think that's what leaders, to me, leadership is about helping other people flourish. It's easy to say. It's hard to do. In the moment, you want to go right to telling people what to do. And in the moment, you may not have the emotional resilience to get through it, but you do your best. What I want to do is I want to help. I want other people around me to accomplish what they can accomplish to, to make things happen. So that's how I would put it. Jim, it's been, it's, thank you very much for that. It's been a, a fascinating and far-reaching conversation. In so many ways, you inspire us to adopt a Dorothy mindset, you know, forever on a journey, somewhere over that rainbow toward a wholeness, that inherent hope and possibility that is born from embracing diversity, embracing the human dignity of each individual in, in our care and the adults that serve them, and, of course, living from this position of an unconditional love. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. And I'm really excited that our listeners get to have this encounter with you as well. It's great having the conversation with both of you. I truly enjoyed our conversation. I think I got distracted too much by how much I enjoyed talking to the two of you, but it was a pleasure. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.